4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian-Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous-Tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans appear. 20,000. Agricultural 250. Industrial revolution. 60. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Generation Anthropocene, the program where we ask the question, what does it mean to be living in the new geologic age? I'm your host, Mike Osborne, and today's interview is with Michael Schellenberger, founder and president of the Breakthrough Institute. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Mike Osborne, and my guest today is Michael Schellenberger. Along with Ted Nordhaus, he's the co-founder of the Breakthrough Institute. Uh, in 2004, Michael and Ted uh, wrote The Death of Environmentalism, which was widely discussed in environmental circles. In 2008, he was named by Time Magazine as one of its 32 heroes of the environment, and his work focuses on a wide range of environmental issues, including conservation, uh, climate, uh, economic development, and uh, a whole host of others. So, Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start off the conversation with the Anthropocene. I'm curious as to what that word means to you and how you kind of arrived at it. Right. Well, for us, I think the Anthropocene very broadly means extensive human control over planet Earth, um, the, a moment where humans are the dominant ecological force on the planet. Now, I mean, as soon as you say those things, of course, you can find things that are why that's not actually right. I mean, we're not really in control in a lot of ways of what happens. Um, sometimes we're hardly in control of ourselves. And obviously there's all sorts of other ecological forces which are still you know, operating without human control. So as soon as you say it, you run into trouble in terms of definition. And I think you're right. I mean, if you look at the influence that early hunter-gatherers had on, on the biosphere, it was extensive. It was much more extensive than people think when we project a kind of Edenic past onto what life was like back then. So in that sense, I think the Anthropocene has to be understood in a sort of second way or a kind of cultural meta way, which is, why are we all talking about the Anthropocene right now? Like, what is it about what's happening in early 21st century, mostly wealthy societies um, that would have us talking about this being the age of humans? So what's the answer to that? I mean, why are we talking about the Anthropocene now? Is it is it a historical coincidence? I mean, did it just come up out of nowhere? I mean, what what is it about 2012 that makes the Anthropocene relevant? Right. Well, obviously, there's a huge number of factors involved. I mean, one of one of them is uh, it, we obviously have much more visibility of what's happening with the Earth than we've ever had before. Um, of course, you could say that about every other moment. We've always had more than we had in the past. But, you know, by the time you get to the early 20th century, we had humans had basically been everywhere on Earth, had gone everywhere you could go. By the late 20th century, we'd even gone to the moon, we were able to sort of see the Earth from outer space. I think there, uh, at a scientific level, there's been an accumulation of knowledge about planetary systems over the last several decades. Earth science has just grown. It's just producing a lot more knowledge now. We have a lot more information. And you have a whole... 
uh, class of experts who have dedicated their lives to understanding Earth systems. And you've got a set, another set of experts that understand human systems and then experts that understand human natural systems. And so uh, there is a way in which this is a moment that's coming at a point where just our scientific knowledge has reached a certain level. That's interesting because, I mean, you you it's sort of like as soon as we have the te technological capability to study the entire planet, that's when we think of ourselves as being a geologic force, being planet transformation force. In as much as you see it as a kind of political question, though, I mean, is it is it about a cultural understanding of our... Because embedded in the idea of us being a geologic force is the idea that uh, we have incredible power and we have incredible dominion over the planet. And, and I think that that's sort of existential and profound. And where do we start to tackle the extent of that power? I mean, what does that say about human nature? I don't know. I mean, where, where would you sort of start with that? Well, I mean, I think the one, the one thing I think that goes on politically and culturally, and you see it in a lot of the scientists who named this era the Anthropocene, is that a lot of these are Malthusian scientists. In other words, these are guys who, they start from the idea that there is a carrying capacity beyond which the Earth is not going to work for humans anymore. That's sort of where they start. And, and you don't buy that. Well, what I, uh, I, I don't buy that, but, which we can get to, but just to finish the thought, which sure. was that, um, so you have a set of, of scientists that are mostly in uh, European countries and the United States, uh, they are uh, becoming prominent and influential starting in the late 60s and 70s. Uh, they issue all sorts of pronouncements about uh, the, the coming population bomb and the, the coming ecological crash. And I think you have to understand a lot of the Anthropocene discourse coming from a set of people who say, we can't live in the age of humans. So there's a set of other people, us included, Earl Ellis, Peter Kareva, who think that there are not hard biophysical limits to human civilization, that the limits to human civilization are human limits to civilization, and that the meaning of the Anthropocene is that this is an era of intensified human choices. Our choices about using nuclear or coal do have planetary and intergenerational impacts, and I think it's important to have to have that awareness. I don't think that calling it the Anthropocene, as I think some people do, will uh, have obvious political implications. The people that tend to think it has obvious political implications are the ones who say, we can't live in an age of man. We can only live in the Holocene. Well, there's a lot to chew on in there. Maybe maybe climate's not a bad place to start, because I, I saw in your critique of the planetary boundaries concept, which I actually thought had some really good points, that that's, that's sort of a misguided framework and uh, that it sets some arbitrary limits that are advocating the same sort of ideas we've been talking, you're talking about uh, in terms of, in terms of constraint. The critique I kind of take issue with a little bit, you know, you hear this a lot from climate scientists that all of civilization grew up in the Holocene, this period of unusual climate stability in the Earth system. And that looking forward in the Anthropocene, whenever it began, or looking forward even the next few decades, few centuries, that the instabilities that we may introduce, that we do want to preserve the climate stability of the Holocene, because otherwise we're playing with fire. 
Right, right. Well, so the first the first thing I think to be clear about is that there has been there has still been a great deal of climate variation uh, in the period of human agriculture. Um, and we have agriculture all over the world. We have agriculture in equatorial regions. We have agriculture in 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 very cold uh, temperate regions. regions yeah, yes. sure. Um, we have extreme weather events um, that are uh, pretty clearly not related to anthropogenic uh, climate change. We have the Dust Bowl um, in the United States, um, which was a terrible drought, and uh, and we're having a huge drought now. Now, the reason that we don't have a lot of Okies in San Francisco, uh, people displaced from their farms by that drought, people living in the streets, which then kind of melted into the Great Depression, is because we're just a heck of a lot richer. And that gets at, I think, the this issue of trade-offs, is that are we better off living in a hotter world actually doesn't get the question quite right. It's actually more like, are you better off living in a hotter world if you're a lot wealthier or are you better off living in the in a world that's much more like the one we've had, where everyone's a lot poorer? I mean, I think uh, it, it doesn't quite matter how we answer the question. People are going to get a lot richer. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a little black and white. But I I, I, yeah. I agree that I mean, what we should be caring about is not necessarily climate stability as much as equity, as much as uh, human well-being. How many people are live in a state of insecurity with food how many people can't get access to medicine i mean that 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 is where the conversation should be focused i totally agree with that but i do think that there are real risks associated with a much warmer world you're right it does have a malthusian apocalyptic kind of narrative to it that i think is maybe misguided at times but it, it can i mean i think that i think that what we what we're I mean, needing does global warming scare you i guess right right well i think that it, it, this is exactly i think the issue which is if we think that human development uh modernized agriculture developed infrastructure of roads and other things to get to get the food where it needs to go modern energy modern cities those things clearly outweigh some amount of warming um, and some amount of climate instability because we can just see it in the difference between being a rich country with droughts versus a poor country with droughts. It's almost identical to being a rich country with earthquakes to a, 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 a poor country with earthquakes. Look at, look at the difference between Haiti and Chile. So clearly you see these development drivers are bigger factors than climate, but that doesn't mean that you wouldn't care about climate or climate stability. And I think there's a whole set of other reasons to care. We've always thought there's a whole set of other reasons to care about energy production and land use changes that don't have anything to do necessarily with warming or might have something to do with warming, uh, but not just with warming. So there's a whole set of other reasons why you'd want to move to zero carbon energy sources than just climate change. Just like there's this whole set of reasons why you'd want to intensify agriculture and reduce deforestation other than climate change. You might want to do it for biodiversity, for aesthetic reasons, for uh, evapotranspiration. Um, and so I think when you get into kind of a wider view of human development and risk, uh, that allows you to see more of the grays, more less of those black and whites and more of the grays of the choices that you're going to be making. So you get to a place which is much more like, let's decarbonize our energy supplies. Energy supplies have been decarbonizing. We know that if you make concerted effort 
you can actually accelerate the rate of decarbonization. So let's do those things. But there's, I don't see any reason why we need to halt hum, the basic process of human development or treat economic development and modernization as contrary to that goal of decarbonization. Similarly, intensification of agriculture. I mean, what one thing I can't quite feel out from you is if you're in, if you're trying to cast doubt on the science. I mean, I I, I, I see you as being somebody who uh, has faith in the in science as a, as a pursuit for understanding certain things about the world. But there does seem to be this. Well, it depends on what they're, you. They're, what, they're, the, you're giving yeah. more oxygen to the uncertainty that maybe they're actually. Well, I don't think so. I mean, if you go ask. One of our one of our senior fellows is a climate scientist, very respected, Tom Wigley. And um, if you ask him what the uncertainties are, he could he'll spend hours explaining the uncertainties. And they don't, yeah, but they no don't one man them. knows. I mean, that's the whole process well, of science is peer review. Yeah, and and I mean, it's a wiki kind but of the, idea. But the, the idea that the idea that um, what what happened with what, what what basically happened on climate change is that a small number of act you know a group of activists, uh, advocate and activist scientists, suggested to policymakers and the public that all of the uncertainties around the climate question uh, had been resolved. And you don't believe that? Of course not. I mean, they go, we know that more CO2 leads to more warming. Therefore, the debate is over. Well, wait a second. So we know that more CO2 leads to more warming. What does that actually tell us about what the world is going to be like in 2100? And then you get to, well, we know that if it gets that much warmer, we won't be able to adapt to it. Well, why do we know that? You know, we, we know, you know, so stop pretending like we know. I, I agree. Yeah. There's yeah. tremendous uncertainty. There's there, um, But actually, this sort of returns to the first question I asked you. Does, does global warming scare you? I mean, I, what I would say is global warming as a, as a threat and as a risk scares me, but it's proportionate to my other fears. <laughs> it, do I think that global warming is a risk factor? Yes. Uh, do I think it's the only risk factor? Do I think it's the most important risk factor? No. I, I think the last, I think that the, the last few years of you know, as the climate crisis, that if we don't act, something cataclysmatic is going to happen. We, we've obviously never believed. I mean, we've, we've, we've been critics of that since death of environmentalism. Right. We've said this apocalyptic framing of this issue is self-defeating for people that care about reducing climate risk. And it doesn't actually represent what, what we know about uh, the history of climate change around uh, human adaptation. Well, human I mean, I think, I think a lot of climate scientists would probably say that the more CO2 we admit as we go, I mean, whatever we're at now, 380, 390, uh, as we go to 450, as we go to 500, 550, 600, 1,000 ppm, whatever, the risks increase and the likelihood right. of increase uh, of risks increase. And um, of certain risks, in other words, so but he, uh, here's, here's of, where of crossing here's, tipping points in the climate system, yeah. which which do exist. Right. I mean, right. Right. We, we could melt Antarctica. We could right. melt. Right. right, 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 right. Yeah. And so you have to be kind of like um, what, what, what I think that the thing with that discourse, what it does is it is it obscures rather than illuminates the trade offs. So is the risk so large that 1.6 billion people who don't have any modern energy, don't have electricity, should not get it? Because if it is, 
That's a pretty serious that you you. But have is anybody to... actually advocating that? I mean, I guess people are advocating for carbon markets and investment in green energy, but I think everybody wants to feed the poor. I mean, I, I mean, I, I I think it's a, it's a matter of strategy, but I don't think that there's a whole lot of people out there saying that the, the climate crisis is necessarily more urgent, although that is. That is kind of the narrative you hear. I mean, I, I sort of grant you that on, on that's what the scientists are saying. Yeah. So if you're if you are um, so if you if you say we have to get to 350.org, we have to get to 350.org, but 350 parts per million as quickly as possible. And then you go, well, well, Bill, <laughs> how are we going to do that? What are really what the paradigm actually says is it's shrink and share. We're all going to do with massively less energy consumption. And of course, we'll move to clean energy, blah, blah, blah. Um, and some of what we're consuming now will be consumed by the poor and, um, and then the rest will help to reduce those emissions. Well, they don't pencil it out. I mean, they don't even bother putting a spreadsheet up on how they would do it because it just doesn't, it is just so ridiculous. There's just no, the amount of, to get to 450 parts per million, you have to build, you have to install one nuclear power plant per day, every day between now and 2050. Well, that's not going to happen. So that's not going to happen. So, so what is the plan? So, so what I what is how is that how is that discourse being used? I mean, it's being used as a way to say all of this development, all of this modernization has to be has to be stopped and has to be reversed. So we have to degrow, shrink and share. These are all just variations on the steady state of eco of, of kind of deep ecology, which come which existed long before there was global warming or before there's any discussion of global warming so you, you can't look at those discourses and say those are scientific discourses when those are those are political discourses malthusian discourses is old wine and new bottles isn't there a role for that i mean don't if we if if climate change is a risk uh, isn't there a role for a radical fringe to pull the flank out so that we can achieve a more middle ground pragmatic solution there i think there are situations where it's important to have uh, a radical French. There's other situations where when that becomes the dominant discourse, it actually makes things worse. So that's been what's happening on climate. The more that you do that apocalyptic stuff, do what I want or else, the more the more alienated the majority becomes. And that's that's clear from the public opinion. In fact, that was we originally get into this because we stumble on all this secretive polling and focus group stuff that was done by the environmental community finding just that that their own communications were backfiring now of course they didn't care because in some ways they're really oriented to the minority for whom it does work you know the 10 percent of the public or the 15 percent of the public for whom they get excited about it they love it they get demoralized against other people's suvs and and they feel good about themselves and they donate but but for the for the people you need to win over in a society to make policy change it's alienated and counterproductive well, Michael Schellenberger, thanks for sitting down with us. Thanks for talking to me, Michael. Thanks for listening to this episode of Generation Anthropocene. We want to thank Pam Madsen and Stanford School of Arts Sciences for their support. As always, a big thanks to Tom Hayden for guidance and inspiration. Thanks to Maserati for use of their song, Monoliths. And thanks to KZSU Stanford 90.1. 
You can find all of our past episodes at stanford.edu slash group slash Anthropocene. And you can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Gin Anthropocene. History is accelerating, and you're a part of it too. Where would you draw the line?